Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray of I Newspaper and I News. And we have a new member of the pod tonight, but more on that. Uh, we've upgraded George, if you ask me. He's been sent away to Cuba um, to learn how to present slash ride horses with his girlfriend in the Cuban mountains. We, of course, as always, have Calvin Bet on here, our esteemed tennis coach. Calvin, how are you? Very well, very well. Good. Um, and we're also joined tonight by Anna Smith, who's a former top 50 doubles player, now a tennis coach and commentator, podcaster, basically just um, everything Calvin wants to be and more. Uh, Anna, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I like that intro. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm very well, thanks. <laughs> good, good. Um, Anna, I, I suppose it would be good to maybe start to talk a bit about you, um, which is maybe something that yourself are facing enough to avoid doing. The other two chaps are very good at talking about themselves, but um, uh, people will have known you as a player, I'm sure. You're obviously now in the post-playing part of your career. What's what's your day job at the moment, or, or do you have lots of hats that you wear? Um, yeah I I kind of have a few different things that I'm doing I'm still trying to figure out exactly the sort of route that I want to take ideally Um, but I've been uh, working as a national coach uh, with the LTA for the 11 to 14 age group Um, Mm. so started that recently uh, really enjoying it it's nice to kind of see the the youth and and try and help them a little bit um, on their journey and then also doing a bit of commentating um, helping a little bit on the women's double side as well trying to get a bit of support to them um, so just doing a few different things at the moment. Mm. And doubles was very much your your specialty as a player. Am I right in saying that? Uh, towards yeah, towards the end of my career, I think probably most people know it or kind of know me from that. Um, but I, I I played singles back in my day. Feels mm-hmm. like a very very long time ago. But yeah, <laughs> um, doubles was uh, probably my main uh, my main thing that people might know me from. What would you say was your your biggest achievement in in singles or doubles, if you like? singles oh god probably uh, it's far too long and I don't think I ever did that well in singles um yes yeah, so we will skim over that one um doubles, uh 
I mean, won, like I won a WTA title, played Fed Cup, now the Billie Jean King Cup. Um, those are probably, uh, you know, a few uh, of the highlights of my career. Hmm. You won a title with Nicole Mellishaw, is that right? I did indeed back in, oh my God, I can't, I actually can't remember the year. That's so embarrassing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> in yeah, the, lost in, in the midst of time, no doubt. <laughs> time just flies doesn't it so yeah back in the day it does it does yeah Anna's going to be joining us um well certainly for this week and hopefully for next week if George gets lost in Cuba so uh, fingers crossed on that one uh, we've got loads to get through tonight though so um, we will dwell no longer we've got Cam Norrie winning a title Elena Ostapenk goat as I've written which is a much better gag written down until you say it out loud Carlos Alcaraz has won a title too We'll talk a bit about that Novak Djokovic interview uh, and uh, have a little run around some great British successes on the tour over the last week as well. But as I say, the place to start is probably Cam Norrie. He won the title in Delray Beach. He beat three Americans on the way, Seb Corder, Tommy Paul and then Riley Apelka in the final. Uh, a pretty good bounce back after what I think we can agree was a nightmare start to the year where he lost matches in the ATP Cup and then, of course, was beaten by Corda in the Australian Open. Um, Calvin, are these titles just the kind of thing we expect Cam to do now, to turn up, be consistent and go and win these maybe, you know, 250 titles as a matter of course? Um, I wouldn't say we expect him to win them, but I maybe also would say that we expect him to win them. Um, I mean, he was top seed in that one. so But he was top seed, but he was, he was really close, uh, mm. the seeding position. So... He could easily be anywhere in the top eight seeds, but I, I still think, yeah, maybe we should expect him to win titles, but I also think it's still a big achievement for him to win them. It's it's definitely not easy to win ATP main tour titles. Hmm. I mean, Anna, you'll, you'll know Cam from, you know, around the NTC and, and, and from the circuit. He, he does seem like the kind of guy who applies a very even-handed mindset to competitions, you know, whether it's a Grand Slam, a 25K or, or you know, a, a 250. I think you, you know exactly kind of what you're going to get from Cam, don't you? He's not going to be um, a sort of Dan Evans and got that talent and that flair. You're just going to get a really hard worker who's just going to apply himself day in, day out. And you can probably see that with kind of his growth as well, how it's not been he's sort of shot up. It's been kind of steady, progressive steps. Um, so, you know, I think it's quite... It's, it's been interesting to see his journey because I remember seeing him before he went to university in America. He used to train at Sutton where I trained. Mm. Um, and I didn't, you know, I would never have guessed in a million years he'd suddenly be winning ATP titles, being <laughs> ranked in slams. And then you just see the work that he's put in day in and day out and how much he applies himself. And you're kind of almost not surprised now that he's kind of reached where he has reached. Um, and I think what he's doing is absolutely incredible and um, fair play to him. You mentioned the, the going away to college and, you know, I've spoken to some of his, his coaches in, in Texas and obviously Calvin, you know, player you work with at the moment, Luke, he, he went away and did college in America. I mean, can you, I, I think you can probably both speak to this, although I appreciate that's not the route you went down, Anna, but you'll know lots of people who have. What is it about going away to college in America that it seems to take players on a journey that moves them quite quickly through a lot of gears, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think that the tennis career is such a, a strange path. And I think some people mature quicker than others and some people just need a bit more development. Mm. Um, so I think for certain players, for me, I just I felt like when I went on tour, I was... 
16, 17, that sort of age. And for me, it just felt like the right move. I had opportunities to go to America, but for me, I just felt like that was the step that I needed to take. But then I know so many players who are kind of a little bit indecisive in terms of, you know, would they want to pursue a career in tennis? They still want to do the academic side of it. And it just gives them that little bit of breathing space to actually figure it out. Um, and there's so many universities as well and so many tennis coaches out there who are so good at developing players as well. So you get that academic side, but also you do get that four years of tennis development as well. Mm. Um, and I think if we look at the longevity of players nowadays as well, then you can see that at the age of 22, when they're coming out of university, that it it's not an old age to start at. Whereas I think a few years ago, if you weren't sort of 18 and hadn't broken into the top 100, it was almost like you were kind of old news. Hmm. I think as well, I think Anna summed it up pretty well there that it, it may not be for everybody, but I think for certain a certain profile of player, if they've not, players need to get an, a certain number of matches in by a certain age. I think that if if you if you get to sort of twenty one and you've been on the tour and or maybe twenty and you went straight on the tour and you've you've been sort of mainly losing first or second round, you can actually have come out and not played a whole lot of matches in tw- in a twelve month period. Mm. Whereas what college tennis will do will give you to a similar level, you know that you're getting definitely three or four matches per week, about 30 weeks of the year. And on top of that, you're getting the practice and you know that those matches mean something. It's not just practice matches. Every match means something because you're playing for your team. Mm. So it, it gives that, if, if the player is not kind of, or maybe if they're not um, not a good match player yet, it gives them time to hone that. But you get other situations where sometimes players at 18 have already played a lot of tennis because they've been particularly good juniors or they've won a lot already in seniors. Like we're going to talk about Jack Draper later. I, I don't think, for example, that Jack would have really benefited from going and doing three or four years of American university tennis because he'd already got a load of matches at that age. But mm. I think Cam maybe hadn't quite, I know Luke hadn't. So it was a good idea for that. And to be like, while we're on this, I've actually been watching quite a bit of tennis, university tennis, college tennis over the weekend because uh, I might end up working with a player who comes out of college in the summer. Um, so I wanted to watch a few of his matches and they've got a big, um, it's the what they call the indoor championships where the 16 best teams play off um, in that. In, it's in Seattle, I think, or somewhere right. in Washington State. And it, it's quite strange, actually, because it, it, the, the coaches can talk to them after every point. So it's really okay. strange that the... The coaches and and I think it's a little bit much as well. I think I don't know if that's a new rule that they can literally walk onto court from the bench and talk to them between points at the baseline when they're about to serve, and they do do that every point. That's wild. Um, yeah, and also on top of that, they play sun death juice um, and they play no lets, and they get obscenely pumped up. Everybody does <laughs> to the extent where it can become a little bit unwatchable. <laughs> Especially on the streams I've been watching because it, it's three, there's three courts next to each other and there's people watching and on after every point, they celebrate <laughs> like they've just won Wimbledon. <laughs> I, 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 I kid you not, I watched the doubles the other day and bear in mind that they play, there's six players. So they play six singles and they play three doubles first, but the doubles is only for one point. So whichever team wins, if, if one team wins two doubles and one and the two, two doubles to one, that's just one point for the doubles, right? Right, So on the first, very first point of one of the doubles matches, both players went for the Nadal double fist pump down on their knees. (laughs) 
like on the first point and, it, and that continued for the whole match so yeah it, it's quite a spectacle and it can be a little bit unwatchable but it's also entertaining <laughs> um i mean luke am i right did luke go to south carolina i made that up no luke went to clemson which is in south carolina uh... or maybe it's maybe in North Carolina, but yeah. I was I was gonna say because South Carolina, as far as I know, is a party school. Like it's a it's a big party school, and yeah. I imagine that that's not why. Because I know that Cam, you know, having spoken to people who played with him, had a decent time at university. Like not just on the tennis court, like, yeah, like yeah. and that was kind of part of it. Um, Anna's making faces that suggest she may know more than me about this, but I'm we can't possibly say that without getting the lawyer involved. Um. I mean, is that is that part of it? Is it part of going and, and living a bit of a life other than being a professional player at 19? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, especially in some places. But they do play a lot of tennis as well. I think, you know, they work hard and play hard, mm. I think. And I know that, um, you know, I know some of the lads who are out there at the minute are definitely doing that. But they're also doing pretty well in tennis. Um, mm. So I think we've, we've cut Arthur Ferry's currently ranked number one NCAA. Um, so he's the best college player out there at the minute on and ranking. that's tennis and partying or you know. <laughs> no, no 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 it might be both yeah um, <laughs> um and there's a couple more lads who are ranked but again the, the whole ranking system which they use is bizarre so florida state currently have the number two ranked player uh in the con- they only rank about 120 players so right. the florida state sorry university of florida currently have the number two player in the country playing at their number two and their number one is unranked. Um, right. So you can kind of play it like that, which, again, some of the stuff that goes on in college tennis makes zero sense at all. But Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. that's that's NCAA sport for you. Um, yeah. to, to kind of steer this back to, I mean, because otherwise we're going to be starting to talk about beer pong and um, other things. Uh, but to bring this back to Cam, uh, I find it interesting that he's, so he played Rotterdam, I think lost second round. He's obviously gone to Delray Beach. He's won there. He's in Mexico this week. He said after the Australian Open, I'm going to play a, a less heavy schedule because, you know, he's he has been playing what I call the Dominic team, which is every tournament you can possibly think of and a few more. He doesn't seem to have watered down. I mean, Anna, you know, he's a guy who we all think has, you know, outperformed his ability already, but he hasn't been past the third round of a Grand Slam and he wants to. Do you look at that schedule and think, oh, actually, we, you know, he really needs to kind of build his season more towards the slams and stop playing every 250 he can. <laughs> I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't done him too badly so far, has it? <laughs> no, um, that's true. Enough. It's a, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because I feel as if someone who has the type of game like Cam does, he almost needs those matches and that kind of to be solid because he's not going to win it on weapons alone. Mm. Um so I think to a certain extent, he's almost got to try and find that kind of happy medium between playing enough to be match tight, but also the type of game he plays is quite physical. Um, so without sort of burning himself out as well. Mm. Um, so maybe this season is going to be a little bit of a kind of trial and error and see, yeah. um, obviously the whole COVID thing at the start of the year kind of put him, well, it didn't really set him in a, a good stead, did it? And you saw at the ATP Cup that he wasn't, kind of the Cam Norrie that we've we've known over the last couple of years. Um, mm. So I think there's probably a, maybe he's playing a little bit more now to almost make up for it. And then he's going to kind of taper the schedule as, um, as the season goes on. Mm. And obviously depending on his success as well. So uh, yeah, I think we'll, we'll maybe see a little bit more of that just as the year goes on. I think maybe as well, it was maybe a bit 
overstated that he had a nightmare start to the year because he played good players. Like, I think he played Felix, didn't he, um, in the ATP Cup? And then I forget the other match he played. And then he played Seb Corder at the Australian, didn't he? Yeah. And, and Seb Corder's a, a blooming good player. Yeah. Um, he actually beat him this week, didn't he? Beat him first yeah, round. Yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it was hard to get a grasp on how well he's been playing because I think at least two or three of those losses, they were coin toss matches, really. Let's move on uh, to Yelena Ostapenko. Uh, she won the title out in Dubai this week. She beat Simona Halep, Iga Shontek, Petra Kvitova and Sophia Kennan, which is quite the hit list, albeit um, Sophia Kennan's career continues to just hit horrible, horrible lows, unfortunately. Um, but let's talk more about Yelena. Uh, Anna, she's this player who I imagine in the locker room, everyone wants to avoid drawing her in like first round of a slam because surely you've no idea what's going to turn up on the other side of the net. No, you really don't. Um, I mean, we all saw at the French Open just like the the level of tennis that she can actually play is is incredible um, and how fearless and kind of and brave she is. But then also you go to these extremes of she literally just can't put the ball in the court. Mm. Um, so that's the kind of player that you you hate playing because you almost feel as if the, the kind of racket is taken out of your hand. Um, but obviously she's proved again this week that when she finds that, she kind of finds her mojo or whatever, that she can take anyone apart. Um, I guess the challenge now for her is how consistently can she do that? And she hasn't really proven that to be the case in in a good few years now Mm. do you think calvin it's a case of with with a player like that especially given where she is i mean i know that she's not old but it feels like she's been around a long time she's only 24 but do you feel like she's kind of made her bed now she says look this is how i play and some weeks it's going to come off and some weeks i'm just going to bomb yeah, I, th- I think that's probably how she's always played, though, right through juniors and into. I mean, when I remember when she won that French Open, it was it was sort of wild. <laughs> you, you're watching it and you're thinking, how long is this sustainable for? And she just kept on going. I mean, something that has come into a game, and I, I didn't see enough of her in juniors to know whether it would be the case or not. But she seems to have started getting into a lot more arguments with players, um, yeah. with other players. It seems that it went through a stage last year where it was like every tournament she was in. Was it? Was it? Um, Oh, she had a really girlfriend, Tom Lanovich. It was Tom Lanovich. She had a massive spat with at Wimbledon this year. Yeah. And I don't know if that's new or whether that helps matters or whether it's part of something that she does. But yeah, I think this is pretty much what we'll get continue to get from her. You Mm. wouldn't write her off winning another slam, I don't think. I mean, is it do you think it's I mean, Anna, you may know better than than we do, but is it an act or you know, is she one of those players who's pretty harebrained on the court and then you bump into in the locker room and everything's fine or like, is this genuinely just one of the hottest-blooded people in tennis? <laughs> I mean, from what from what I know, from what I've seen, I think she is she's a little bit of an odd character, and I don't <laughs> think she really cares if anyone sort of likes her or or if she's well liked on the tour. So, um, no, I wouldn't say this is just a, a kind of character that she portrays. Um, but yeah, she she just sort of does her own thing and she doesn't care what other people think. And it's, you almost see that on the court. She kind of does whatever she wants. Um, Mm. But I think, I don't know, I guess for her moving forward, she almost has to figure out if she's happy just being as up and down as she is, or if there's some way that she wants to try and rein in kind of how she plays a little bit more to try and be consistent. But then does that take away her unpredictability? I'm not, 
I'm not sure, but she, from what I remember, she changes coaches quite frequently as well. Like she's had a mum in her corner, then she's had brought some other people in and then they've disappeared. And yeah, she just seems generally a little bit all over the place. Um, mm. But maybe that kind of suits her and her personality. I guess it, it comes to, as you, as you say, and it seems silly, but with Elena Ostapenko, anything is possible. It's what sort of player do you want to be? Do you want to be top 10 in the world and, you know, making fourth round quarterfinals a lot? Or do you want to be someone who wins two titles a year, plays box office tennis, but sometimes will just lose first round? I mean, the reality is she hasn't been to the second week of a slam in four years. And, you know, I know we talk a lot about... Actually, to be honest, that's a pretty sad indictment of her her game because, I mean, almost everyone's made the last second week of a slam in the WTA in the last three years because it's completely random, it seems. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. She, she's someone who, like, first four days of Wimbledon, and I'm going through the enormous order of play. She's someone I always circle because I'm like, hmm, if I've got a quiet hour in the afternoon, I'm going to head to court 17 or court three or whatever and seek her out because something will happen. I think that's pretty valuable. I have to say, I surprised myself when I looked her up there and saw that she's only 24 because I do feel like she's been around. Like she won the, she won the French Open five years ago. I don't know. I have she's... to say, when you said she was 24, I, I was literally like, jaw hit the floor, because I was like, <laughs> there's no way she's only 24. I feel, like you said, I feel like she's been around for years. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. That's the problem when you win the French Open as a teenager, as almost everyone seems to do these days. It makes things very difficult for the rest of your career. Um, I, I mentioned there Sophia Kennan, who she beat, I think, in the second round. Her kind of, I mean, slump doesn't even really cover it. Like, just absolute... Uh, I, I, Calvin, I can't really sum it up. I mean, we, we it's almost become a running joke that when we're playing fantasy tennis, we're just trying to find whoever draws Sophia Kennan in the first round. But, I mean, it is legitimately sad, isn't it, to see someone whose career appears to have just, like, imploded, barely even covers it. Yeah, I mean, her whole career before that's been a bit strange because she ended up winning... She what, Did she win a slam and then lose in a final? She won the Australian Open, yeah, and yeah. got to the what US Open final. Yeah, and that, but then even that seemed like she'd gone above what everybody thought her level was or mm. what her power level was. So, and now it seems to have gone below that. You know, she, she sort of, I think she's a player who you generally expect to kind of be around 30 in the world, I guess. But over the last three years, she's played kind of like somebody who's four in the world and then somebody who's 404. That's a good question, actually. Would you rather like, have a year of playing number four in the world tennis and then a year of playing like 70 in the world? Or would you rather just have two years of playing like 19? Oh, the the former of those two. Because then you might win a slam. Yeah, you win a slam and, you know, you get, yeah, a full year of it. Like even being like, I think people don't get that. Even if you're ranked kind of like 40 in the world, that's kind of a tough position, tough ranking to be because... Most tournaments, you're kind of be going to be getting one of the best players in the world in the first or second round. Mm. So you're not, you, again, you can go through whole years where you're not winning much on that because you're going to play a seed in the first or second round all the time. Yeah. Whereas it if was you're kind ranked of... below that, if you're ranked below that, you're going to go, pr- enter a few and win a few challenges, win a lot of qualifying matches and that kind of thing. And if you're ranked above that, you kind of, you're not going to get a seed. So Evo kind of went through it last year when he was like, uh, he just had a run of like six weeks where he just drew top seed like almost every week. And in, admittedly, he beat Djokovic on one occasion, but pretty much every other week he was just running into 
big guys. It's not a good place in the world to be uh, to be ranked. Um, it's also not a great place to be ranked in the women's game because you don't win very much money. Um, this was kind of highlighted in Dubai. Uh, Yelena Ospenko, as I mentioned, won the Dubai title. She got $104,000 for winning, which, you know, is um, better than a slap in the face with a wet fish, but it's nothing compared to the men's winning prize pool, which is uh, $500,000 plus in Dubai. We talk a lot about equal prize money in tennis, and it's often held up as this great example of equal prize money. Uh, Is there a reality, Anna, that outside of five or six events a year, there is a massive disparity in prize money between the men's and the women's game? Uh, Yep, that's a pretty (laughs) simple answer to that question. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it is. It it, it kind of is, and it's, it's been known, and obviously there's been you know so much attention brought to it and and people trying to to change that but ultimately there still is a massive gap um and that's something that ideally we would like to bridge but i'm not sure how quickly that is going to change although things are slowly changing but yeah Mm. there's absolutely still a gap and and dubai is still you know sort of a prime example of that despite you know the grand slam saying oh you know we offer equal prize money and you know a certain a couple of other events but no, are you aware? Are you, were you so, sorry? Um, were you aware of it as a player that and, and like was it ever brought into sharp focus for you when you would look at a male player who you felt was basically playing at the same level and didn't have the same financial kind of hardships that you had? Yeah, I, I mean, you do. Um, I kind of suppose you know you're not that in a way you're not that focused on it but yeah I suppose if looking back on it now you do look at a certain draw and you're at a tournament like a mixed event for example and you actually see sort of the draw um, and then you look down and you see at the bottom the prize money they get for first round and then you see the prize money you guys get for first round and you're just like I swear this is almost like the same level event how how are they getting almost like double triple whatever it is Mm. than we are um but yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's, it was one of the more frustrating. Um, I guess maybe you it. make peace with it and and you go, okay, well that that is how it is, and I've just got to try and get over my own game. Yeah, basically. I mean, there's there's not really much that you can do to change it. Um, you either suck it up and get on with it, or complain to someone and they don't really care too much. So <laughs> you know, you're going to don't give a choice. I, th- I think I guess one of the difficult ways around of getting around it is that and i think a lot of people who aren't really involved in tennis don't get this is that the 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 two separate governing bodies the atp mm. and the wta and i think at, at slams you can do the equal prize money because they're run by the same people yeah whereas wta and atp they're not and yeah. you know so it's like it's then up to just the tournament in dubai as to how much they decide to offer so it's kind of that it's not an excuse, but it offers them a way out, which they yeah. shouldn't take, but they tend to take it, I, I think. And I think that's, you know, one of the things we spoke about a few weeks ago where I think Jonathan Liu wrote that that piece about how tennis was sort of basing itself around the big four and the governing bodies were in it. And the problem with that whole article was that there is no real, that, that there's numerous governing bodies in tennis, not one. So that, that wasn't really appropriate. Hmm. Yeah, and it, it does come down to, you know, a brave tournament would say, you know, and make a big deal of it that they're, they're you know, levelling up the prize money is something that not many tournaments do. But you can see that perhaps in the Middle East and somewhere like Dubai, gender equality isn't top of their list of uh, things to 
to focus on. Um, after the break, we're going to talk about Carlos Alcaraz, uh, my favourite topic of conversation. We'll talk about that Novak Djokovic interview as well. And as mentioned, Jack Draper, Ali Gray, Sonic Cartel, all having good weeks. Support for the Love Tennis podcast this week is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They've just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0 across Europe. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 4 million men who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. You can get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code LOVE. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Of tennis at manscaped.com. That's 20% off manscaped.com just type in love tennis that way you're helping yourself and you're also helping us a little bit at the podcast the thing i'm really going for is the crop reviver which describes itself as refreshing ball toner um it's essentially a spritz so i don't know if you're you're um a man who gets a bit swampy on a, on a summer's day you know a bit sort of uncomfortable and warm so that's that certainly uncomfortable you've... now james that we're, uh, having a <laughs> george we were just talking earlier about how women should be able to talk about their own problems like endometriosis. And we should be able to talk about the fact that when it's hot and sweaty, you get hot and sweaty. Um, the refreshing ball toner is just a little pick me up uh, to spritz yourself. And I, honestly, I, I came home the other day. I've been on tube, felt a bit grim. Little spritz felt good as new. And, and the trimmer, the trimmer, I have to say, George, are you someone who has a trimmer that you use for every bit of your body? I I'm someone who's very appreciative to have a specified trimmer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So if you head to manscaped.com, you get 20% off and free shipping. If you use the code love tennis, you unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with manscaped. So Carlos Alcaraz, my fame favorite topic of conversation, mostly because I've been talking about how good he's going to be for the last two years. Uh, he won another title in Rio this week. Uh, Rio, where, of course, he won his first ever tour match two years ago now, when he beat Albert Ramos Vinolas in what seemed to be about a four-hour match at the time because it finished at three in the morning. Uh, anyway, he, he picked up the title in Rio, which I, even for clay courts appears to be some of the slowest courts going because every match seemed to be going about four hours there. Um, he beat Diego Schwartzman in the final. He also knocked out Matteo Berrettini, Fabio Fanini, uh, Del Bonis and Jaime Munar as well. So some decent clay court players there. Calvin, as I say, um, it's a name that we've thrown around this podcast a lot uh, about how good he's going to be and, and you know that we think he's a future Grand Slam winner. This clay court swing, though, because presumably he's now going to go up to North America and play hard court. So, presumably he has a deal with Rio. That's what it feels like, anyway. Uh, yeah, I would assume so. Yeah, he'll get a hefty appearance fee, I would think. Mm. Um, that's tends to be how it works. So, um, but he's yeah, in, anyway. He's I mean, you know, he still won it, so um, we can't have a go at him too much. Uh, he's into the top twenty um, for the first time in his career. Uh, going to go up to 19 next week when the rankings refresh, assuming nothing else changes 
in Acapulco or Dubai. Do you think that is maybe where he is now in terms of the tennis that he's playing, 1920 in the world? Yeah, if not higher, I'd say. Um, I mean, he destroyed Berrettini, didn't he? Mm. And Berrettini is a legitimate top 10 in the world player. So um, I don't know what it finished up with Berrettini. I only saw the first set and a bit, but um, he was absolutely battering him. Six two two six six two. So you know you missed the rally from Berrettini, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I'd say I think he'll be competing. I'd be a threat at the French, I would think. And he was last. He made the semis of the US last year, didn't he? Mm. So <laughs> yes, player um, Anna. He's wearing cutoffs. He's got the Rafa Nadal tank tops on. So in my opinion, he may have a step back in his career, but. Uh, in terms of his tennis, he, he's starting to look like a real... I mean, I don't know. You obviously work with young players, but he, he's um, been someone who's been this kind of physical monster. I mean, he's, only, he's still only 18 now. Um, he he looks so physically developed for a guy of his age. Still doesn't quite have the, the guns of Nadal there, does he? Um, <laughs> not quite. I'm, I'm still not convinced he can pull it off. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he, you've seen the way he's developed as well over the last sort of year or so. Um, I mean, physically, he's just getting stronger and stronger and he just looks like he just knows what he's doing on the court. He has that that desire, that fire in his eye, doesn't he, and in his belly. And um, for someone so young, it is so impressive. And mm. I hadn't seen much, to be fair. And then I watched him um, in Australia that... Oh, who, I can't remember who he played that five set thriller. No, that was Berrettini um, again. Oh yeah, the Berrettini match. Mm. Um, he came. Uh, he, the Berrettini came through it, but I mean, it was just, it was just like so impressive the way that kind of the the fighting spirit he showed, the the bravery and the weapons that he had. And, and like Calvin says, I think he's he's probably playing to an even higher level, and it's just a matter of time before the ranking just goes higher and higher. Mm. I mean. It's pretty hard to to sit here and guess, but I know that George would would make me, would make us try and predict exactly how many Grand Slams Carlos Alcaraz is going to win. Uh, Calvin, what bracket would you put him in? Um, I think he'll end up. I've always said this before that like I would love to have seen what Nadal's and this isn't any sort of criticism on Nadal. I'd love to have seen what Nadal's career would have looked like if he was right-handed, and I think <laughs> we might find out now. Um, <laughs> and so. I wouldn't maybe eight ish, mm. I think. But then you always say, and, and it's a really interesting question and conversation to have, is that eight Grand Slams now we think of as like, because Djokovic and Nadal Federer have just moved the needle in such a way, we think of eight Grand Slams, we're like, yeah, eight. But like eight, eight puts you in the top 10 of all time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Of course it does. <laughs> I put you in the top five or six. Yeah. Um, like, you know, Agassi had, I think Agassi had seven. And, you know, that was a hell of a career. Um, I, I, I also, speaking of Agassi, I heard someone call Pete Sampras the most overrated sports person of all time the other day. And I, I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't, I didn't really understand what was going on. I assume they never watched Pete Sampras play tennis. <laughs> um, the, the, the phrase serve valley... Yeah, I, the phrase serve volley bash was was mentioned, I, which I didn't really like either. It was that's like great. criticizing Cristiano Ronaldo at football because for just scoring loads of goals. 
I mean, I have always said that's boring. It's a very boring approach to football to just score goals. Yeah. As a hip season ticket holder, I've always thought success was very overrated. Um, Carlos Alcaraz, incidentally, has sensibly uh, pulled out of his uh, first round clash with Cam Norrie in Mexico, uh, which was a bit of a shocker of a draw for Cam. But um, he has taken the week off, so he doesn't have to deal with that anymore. Um, he also played doubles down in Rio, which I just always like. I just like it when, you know, okay, he, he probably wasn't expecting to go to the final. He did pull out in the second round, but I like it. You know, we talked about it with Rublev. I like it when you see these guys still willing to turn up and play doubles. I mean, Anna, you know, like how important of a game doubles is. And I imagine when earlier in your career, when you're playing singles and doubles, I mean, I appreciate that it, it it's in some ways a way to make ends meet, but you can probably see the advantage of playing doubles at a young age for developing your game. Yeah, definitely. But that that's also one thing that does great me a little bit about um, when these so-called singles players do play doubles and then, you know, they play one match because they get a match before they play the singles and then they pull out. That is literally like my pet peeve, the amount of times that happens. And I think there needs to be something done about that. But, you know, for, for example, like Rublev, I mean, for the most part, he plays a lot of doubles, especially with Hatchinov. Um, And they do pretty well sometimes. So, you know, I have no qualms about that. But when it's it's like Carlos Alcaraz, who plays, um, you know, one match and then he pulls out just probably because, you know, they want him to play. Mm. I do have a slight slight issue with that. Um, But that's just sort of my pet peeve. I'm just starting to run now. I think it's also pretty, also usually predetermined as, as well, isn't it, Anna? That they they decided they're going to play one match before they even play one. It's not like they play and yeah. then think I'm, you know, I'm a bit tired now. I'm going to pull out. That often, I know, well, I know that they've, I know players who've done it just said they're going to pull out after the first round. <laughs> yeah, I know, and then it takes away from a spot for people who actually just play doubles, mm-hmm. and yeah. that is just that's something that both tours do need to look at. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There are definite pairs that say, Do you know, what? we're going to sign in, we're going to play a match. They even go up to the the tournament referee and say, can you schedule us for the day before the singles? So they know they've got a match. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I think that's terrible. I genuinely think it's terrible. I mean, could you, I mean, I suppose you have to differentiate between genuine injury and not, and that's very hard. But, you know, Calvin, you were telling us earlier this year that you can only pull out of a certain number of tournaments each year. In is that right? Did you say that early in the year? Uh, after the after the withdrawal date, yeah, yeah, you have a withdrawal deadline, and you're. But then injuries kind of don't count towards that. They if you have medical exemption, and don't, <laughs> don't use that phrase, Calvin. It's very triggering for some people. <laughs> um, but yeah, if 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 you have medical exemption, they they usually don't count towards that number and. I think that's kind of half the problem, that especially the higher-ranked singles players, they're quite chummy with the referees and the tournament directors, so they're never really going to push them too much on. And it, it kind of often, as bad as it sounds, it kind of often suits the tournament director. They'd love to have Novak Djokovic playing a round of doubles yeah. um, at Dubai on a night or something like that before he plays singles, and then they don't mind if he pulls out. Mm. They'd always give him a wild card to do that. Yeah, Nadal, uh, Nadal did it in Australia in the warm-up tournament that he won. He played one round of doubles. And I think even bef- like possibly in his post-match press conference, they won. And then he said, well, I'm not doing that again, obviously. Like, why why, why would I? Yeah. <laughs> it seems slightly bizarre. Um, you mentioned Novak Djokovic there, Calvin, and it's a lovely segue uh, into his return to the tour. He has, as we speak, just beaten uh, Lorenzo Musetti in straight sets out in Dubai. 
Uh, I actually can't tell you who's got in the next round because I haven't got the draw in front of me, but I seem to remember it's not the worst draw in the world. Um, it's not really what I wanted to talk about, though, the tennis, quite frankly. He, of course, did this huge interview with the BBC. Uh, Amal Raj and the media editor did the interview. You will almost certainly all have seen lots of it. Um, I was in China, so I wasn't able to watch it until about an hour ago, um, but had, of course, read most of the best bits. Uh, the, the key quotes, I suppose you might say, um, of course, surrounded the vaccination, whether he's been vaccinated. He says, I understand and fully support the freedom to choose whether he wants to get vaccinated or not. He is not vaccinated as of today. Um, his explanation for not being vaccinated was that he keeps his mind open to other treatments or to whatever, because we're all collectively trying to find the best solution to end COVID. Um I mean, I'm kind of open to ideas on this because I haven't been plugged into the UK and the tennis world as much as you guys have over the last week. Um, do, do you think this has changed anyone's opinion on Novak Djokovic at all, or has it just entrenched people more in their positions? I, I doubt it's changed anyone's opinion, to be honest. Um, I mean, I actually know a couple of people got some information about it, that it was organised by a PR company. Mm. Um, and it was entirely a PR move, which then, like, I couldn't believe it. that being the case. He then, like, surely you're just hoping he doesn't start talking about other treatments and that kind of <laughs> knowing Novak's record on that kind of thing. I thought he was going to start talking about energized water and mushrooms. He did talk about water, and I, I thought, oh, here we go, here we go. We're onto water <laughs> molecules rearranging themselves. Um, but no, it, is, it was so bizarre though, because he started talking about. I don't look, I don't agree with his stance on it, but I kind of do. You know, I'm I'm all for freedom of choice. We discussed that kind of thing. I'm vaccinated, triple vaccinated. So, but I do think that people should have some sort of choice. But it's then when he starts talking about how he needs to stay in tune with his body, and I, I don't like what does that mean? It's like he he's talking as if if you have the vaccine, your body definitely is going to go to pieces, and it's just not based in any sort of reality, is it? Like. I don't, yeah, I, look, you, we know my thoughts on Novak Djokovic's mental state. <laughs> I'm going to play devil's advocate here uh, slightly and say, uh, and Anna, you can agree with this or disagree with this, and say as a professional athlete, you are required to scrutinise everything that goes into your body, you know, from an anti-doping perspective and as well as from a performance perspective. So, so is there any possibility that that creates a mindset where you could find yourself with some heavy vaccine scepticism i mean i mean i guess but then ultimately yeah like calvin said you can you can kind of do whatever you want with your body but you ultimately have to accept the consequences then of what that means tennis wise and i think what irritated people was that he was almost thinking that he was above the law mm. and that he could just almost do whatever he wanted and still get into the country um you know his his views on on that stuff are, are his views and not everyone has to agree with it but kind of the world that we live in and how things need to work you know no matter whether you're Novak Djokovic or you know Joe Bloggs it doesn't matter you have to you have to kind of abide by the rules and then um I think that was what kind of irritated um most people from from the situation that happened in Australia anyway also, I think it kind of goes out the window a bit when he's talking, like you said, James, right, rightly, that you've got to keep an eye on what you put in your body as an athlete these days. He's not getting a drugs ban because he had a COVID vaccine. 
Like that, that's not going to happen. Like if, even if there were, even if on the the very, 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 very slim chance that something did come about that, I'm sure that's pretty easily resolvable. Yeah, like, but I, I, what I just mean, and and it's partly because I've been involved in a really big dub, doping story over the last ten days with Kamir Valieva, the figure skater, um, in uh, the Russian figure skater, is that you know every time you take something. You have to, you know, and it's very easy to do yeah. because I've done it, you know, as a as a chest. You you plug it into the the WADA website and you stick it in the database and you see what's in it and see if it's banned. And what and and then Novak obviously has taken this to extremes because that's what Novak does, and it's one of the reasons he's the best in the world and possibly ever, is because he has taken this obsession with, you know, having all the his phrase is having all the information I can get on something, which, you know, is very close to doing my own research, which as we know is a real red flag. Um, he, also, he also uses this, he keeps using this statement. I I'm currently in tune with my body. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, I don't like, know. Who, who, like who are we out of tune with our bodies or. Like, I mean, I, I've, I've just come off a 32 hour flight. So yeah, I'm pretty out of tune with my body, but you know, that's, I feel like that has some mitigating factors. But he was saying, uh, like, I mean, he said it in a tone of, like, I'm in tune with my body. And then without saying it did say that if I took this vaccine, it, that would take me out of tune with my body, which I, that's just nutty talk. That. But we, but we do, we all know players who either haven't had the vaccine or have you know, being reticent to have the vaccine because of what they think the physical effects of it might be. So while I appreciate that Novak is the only top 100 singles player left, I think, who hasn't got it in the men's game anyway, you know, he's not alone in the profession, I would suggest. No, no, not at all, no. Um, it, it, I, I didn't love the interview uh, on the whole. I mean, as you say, Calvin, it was set up by a big PR firm. Amal Rajan was chosen for a reason. You know, he, he used to be editor of The Independent. He has now been media editor for a long time. He's a kind of versatile, uh, what's it called, utility player at the BBC. You know, he's not a Dan Rowan or an Emily Maitlis who would have pressed Novak more hard hard on those things. Um, I, I thought it was particularly interesting when he, he was asked, um, it's probably the best question Rajan asked, was he said, you know, you're held up as a poster boy for these anti-vax movements. And Novak, instead of immediately answering the question by saying, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'd like to make that very clear. He answers the question by saying, everyone has a right to act or say whatever they feel is appropriate for them. I've never said I was part of that movement, which is, it's, it's like, yeah, it's, it's sort of disavowing himself from that movement, but it, it's such an unnecessarily sort of wriggly way of doing it. And I think that's what has annoyed me repeatedly about Novak Djokovic is that he consistently makes things slightly harder for himself than he has to. If he just said to that question, well, that's ridiculous. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I don't know what people have thought about what I've said in the past, but I'm not. It would have just taken the sting out of the whole thing. He also said at one point, no one's ever asked me for my stance on vaccination, which is, is, is a straight up lie. Because I know for a fact that a border official asked him, multiple border officials asked him, his lawyers asked him, he deposed his vaccination stance in the court of law. Um, but apparently, if you know a Djokovic, sorry, I got very angry there. I'm going to calm down. Um, I, I don't, people will have other opinions on Novak Djokovic, and there's no shortage of them, which I guess is the important thing. Um, he will be able to play Wimbledon because uh, I was delighted to return to the UK today and find that COVID has been eradicated here. 
or at least that that would appear to be the government policy. So that's that's great. They've just given up, which is fine, I suppose. Um, let's move on before I really start just going off on the government. Um, it's, it's bizarre. I've gone from the most authoritarian, no COVID, zero COVID um, like country in the world to a country that is just basically deciding that they're going to ignore it. And that's some great triumph. And I don't like either of them. Let's talk about Jack Draper, shall we? A man who I, I know loves a vaccine. I actually have no idea. I may be libeling Jack there. I have absolutely no idea what he thinks about vaccination. Um, but I know what he thinks about challenger titles, that they're easy. Uh, he won his second one this week. Uh, he's up to 160 in the world. Um, Anna, you'll obviously know Jack pretty well, and you'll have seen him kind of progress his way through the ranks. Uh, this is pretty much his first season playing at this level, at least consistently, and he's making pretty light work of it, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He doesn't seem to be finding it too challenging. Um, I mean, we always knew the potential that he had and he was spoken about from a young age. Um, obviously, that that junior Wimbledon uh, sort of... was it, I can't remember, was it final or...? Yeah, he got I the final. Did he, he get, lost he, in the final. Yeah. He, George and I were there. Yeah, and you could just see... Well, yeah, you could just see the kind of the way he handled the big stage when he was out on court one and just sort of riling up the crowd and absolutely loving it. There's not that many teenagers who are kind of good like that. Um, mm. So I think we always knew that it was it was going to happen at some point. Um, he's obviously had injuries and things like that have plagued him a little bit. But now that he's had a bit of consistency, his real talent and quality is, is starting to show through and... I think I saw he won the final, didn't he win it like one and two or something? Mm, yeah, walked. Took him out easily. Um, you know, so he's obviously showing his talent and I think he's just going to go from strength to strength, um, providing he can stay fit. Yeah, I mean, it's always a big if, isn't it? Uh, what does it do, you know, when you're out working on court with people within the system, you know, young kids, uh, you know, between 11 to 14 as you do, what does it do for them when they see people like him going out and winning tournaments, you know, who were only a couple of years ago doing what they're doing? Well, I mean, it's, it's the same for kind of Emma Raducanu as well, isn't it? You've got these role models who, who you see have come not from kind of where you've been, but a few years ago, they were kind of on that same journey. Um, and it just gives those kids that motivation and that belief as well. You know, they're not too far ahead of me and all of a sudden they're doing these things. Mm. Um, so it, it just gives that belief. And you you have those role, role models because you look at people like um, Emma and Jack and how hard they've worked. Um, and that sort of, you know, all of these kids are like, oh, my God, do you know Emma and all of this stuff? And you're like, <laughs> yeah, but you see, you see how hard she's worked and. You know, I've been fortunate enough to see her in the gym and kind of behind the behind the scenes and things like that. Um, and yeah, it, it's great for that sort of age group. It's it it is kind of makes it a little bit more tangible for them. Whereas you know, when they see like an Osaka and stuff, they there's no concept or they just feel like that's so far away. But mm. with the likes of Jack and Emma, you know, you feel like maybe it is a little bit more tangible. Um, Calvin, I know Jack's someone you think is going to have a big year. He's up to 160 in the world now. We talked about rankings earlier. Where is 160? Is there a, a kind of lip that he needs to get over here that will help him progress forward? I mean, obviously, like, you know, if you get as high as 115 or something, then you start thinking about major or grand slams and things. But, you know, where where is that next kind of little jump, if you like? 
yeah, I think the next one is getting main draw slams and then um, top 100, obviously, mm. then. It's quite a big step now. I know that that sort of, and I think I've said this on the pod before, I know a few years ago when Liam Brody was 150 the first time, obviously he's, he's a bit higher than that now, but he told me then when he was 150, he needed to double his ranking points to get in the top, to get to be 99. Wow. So it, it, it is quite a big step now. It's not just a case that, if you keep doing kind of what you're doing, you'll end up there. You have to then start winning a couple of the bigger challenges and start getting into main draw of tour events, slams and winning rounds in that, which Jack's capable of doing. Mm. Um, you talk about making that that step forward. I mean, is it, I, I know that, for example, when he was struggling out in Miami in the heat, you know, someone you spoke to said that he, he wasn't fit enough and whether that's his own fault or more realistically, the, the fate of injury, do you think there is it is just physicality or is there something he needs to add to his game in, in terms of technical stuff in, in the next 12 months? I don't think so, no. I think he's, his game's been there. His mentality has always been there, right from being 10 years old when I first saw him, maybe a bit younger, eight maybe. Um, he's been sort of brought up to be a, a winner and that's where it is. I think it's, it's just now a case of him uh, keeping fit in terms of injury free, mm. he's a fit low. He's a fit lad now. I spent a lot of time with him just the, the couple of weeks before Christmas. We went, they practiced a lot with Luke, who I coach. Um, and um, he's, I know he's, he's in great condition. And on top of that, it will be a case of just playing enough tournaments, staying on the tour. You have to do that now, which is something again, that Jack's not really done before because of his body and that kind of thing. He's not been able to do, you know, six weeks out of eight, in a row all too often. What he's very good at, as we saw yesterday, and what some players aren't, this can't be underrated, is he doesn't waste time on court. He doesn't waste um, waste games. He, he has no problem just destroying people. And and even like, you know, some players, strange as it seems, like Murray, as we've discussed previously, has never been that great at it. He gets himself into battles when he really shouldn't, right? Even when he was at his peak, and he's, he's doing it now, he's done it today, hasn't he? Mm. Um, whereas... You know, Jack is one of those players who throughout all the levels he played at has just given people beatings. Mm. Long may it continue, say I. Um, a couple of other good bits of uh, British success this week is well. Ali Gray winning uh, another 25k and Sonny Cartel um, winning in... Oh, I've forgotten where that one was. Was it in Glasgow? Have I made that up? Um, no, uh, yeah, uh, another 25k for her. I mean, Anna, you'll obviously... Um, no, what can you tell us about Sonny Cartel for people who don't know her that well? Uh, I actually played her in doubles in my very last tournament. Wow. Um, so back in oh, 2019, I think, mm. when she was still little, although she's quite small, but younger, <laughs> rather. Um, I mean, you could see even then she was very talented. Um I think she struggled quite a lot with injuries and things like that. Um, mm. But you knew she had the talent. And obviously everyone saw that um, video that went viral with Emma as well. Um, mm. And you could see that, you know, even from a youngster, she she knew how to play the game. Um, and for me, I watched her in uh, Edgebaston last week. I think, yeah, last week. Um, and I saw her, I think it was quarterfinal match and just how she absolutely destroyed the girl. Um, and I was so impressed from what I remember playing against her to where she'd come from now just the weapons she had like she's got herself in really good shape um 
And one thing that just really stood out for me was just how calm she was. Nothing seemed to phase her. You know, there's not like huge ups and downs in the match. No matter what happens, it's just very like same even keel. And I think that's what impressed me the most. It's just she's very solid mentally, very um, self-confident, knows what she can bring. And, you know, I think she's jumping into the top 400 already. Mm. I mean, that's a huge leap from kind of where she's come um, back end of last year and even slightly earlier. Um, so, I, I mean, I think she's going to go even higher if she can keep this up. Anna, is there anything that you think that she would have to improve on to go to the next step if she's going to wherever she goes? Is I, I mean, I've known her since she was like sort of 12, I think. I'm just interested to know what you think. Does her game hold up at the next two levels up or is there anything that you need to add? I mean, the thing is, is you look at the women's tour and the very top end have got sort of big weapons. I mean, you know, she she hits a heavy ball. She really does. Um, and for someone who's as talented as she is, I'd love to see her use that variety a little bit more. She's got that backhand slice. You know, she's got good hands at the net, but you don't see her come forward. I feel like that's something maybe she could add a little bit more, just adding, yeah, adding that slicing. Can she come forward, knock off points a little bit earlier? Um, because from the baseline, you know, she can rally with with players. Obviously, kind of the size, you know, is not an issue, but, you know, she's not going to have a massive serve, but she still has a pretty good serve, but... I think just adding those different elements to her game and just developing them even more, I think mm. for me would be just some areas that I'd like to see in the next sort of year or two. I always think it's interesting when you've got players who are diminutive because, I mean, it, it can vary depending on, you know, when they've grown and where they've kind of come through the game, you know, but if you've always been small, I, I always think that is a little bit of an advantage because, you know, if you've been small in your cohort, I mean, because you know how to play with that. You know how to deal with that. I mean, Calvin, you, you'll have worked with players who um, aren't blessed with height. Um, I imagine that the variety and the ability to end points quickly by coming forward, are they the kind of things you look at? I know players are not all the same, man. I'm talking in general. Um, yeah, it's a strange one, actually, because now we're seeing you know, a couple of smaller people come through, like Sunay is, is quite short, um, comparative. And like Arthur Ferry, to be fair, is not a big lad. Uh, mm. And we just said how, how he's doing really well. And sort of about 10, 12 years ago, when talent ID was really a, a big thing in the LTA, they became absolutely obsessed with height. And <laughs> basically, they were just writing players off. Players would walk in and the, the national coach, national ID coaches at the time would look at the height of their parents, then just dismiss them. Um, <laughs> of, of that, That's not going to happen. And I've that's not... And, and I'll, that's a natural thing that I've seen happen. And I've seen discussed <laughs> around tables. That well, There's no point as taking this player any further because I've seen a, I've seen his mum and I've seen his dad and they're not very tall. So this is not going to happen. But um, And yeah, look, it, it's more likely that if you're tall, you will get higher in tennis. But that doesn't mean that if you're not, that you won't get high, uh, yeah. higher in tennis. Diego Schwartzman being the operating example that oh, yeah. and what is to. look? What it's one of those, isn't it? What is tall and what is short? You, you know, you're Anna, Anna, you're five nine. Is that right? I wish I was five nine. You're giving me a couple of inches there. I'm only five seven. Your Wikipedia says you're five nine, so I won't well, change. Someone it. needs to change that. They got that horribly <laughs> wrong, and it wasn't me. I mean, um, what was? Where does that sit? I mean, you know, in terms of people around your cohort, did, did, did you think that made you sort of average, or like below average, maybe in terms of players? I mean, I. 
I always felt that I was on the smaller side on tour, mm. um, even though I think I'm generally would be considered above average. But yeah, um, yeah I, I don't know. I think, I think there are so many different sort of shapes and sizes as we see on the tour, um, especially on the women's side who yeah. have made it. I don't think, I mean, from memory, standing next to Barty, I don't think she's, she's not a giant, is she? I no. mean, she's pretty stocky, but um, in terms of height, she's not, she's not huge. Um, so yeah, I, I know what you mean about um, the whole, you know, if you're not going to be above a certain height. And I remember um, conversations around growth and maturation and all oh, their predicted heights and this and that. And you're just thinking, God, you're writing off like a 12 year old based on the fact that, oh, they're only going to be five foot eight as opposed to like six foot one. <laughs> and you kind of think this is not, you know, taking into account all of the other stuff that actually requires you to be a tennis player um so yeah in in some senses I do understand you know I do understand where they're coming from in, in the scientific thing but at some point you think I mean just just let the kid play tennis and see what happens <laughs> I think it, we also got to the stage of this true story I'm going to tell like I've happened on numerous occasions we got to the, uh, the the we started making the mistake of well they started making the mistake of thinking that height is equal to athleticism so I've I've been at regional training uh, where they've selected talent, they've talent ID kids and brought in kids who were tall, who had tall parents, and genuinely some of the least coordinated, worst moving people I've ever seen. And I've seen the people who were running the sessions just standing there going, such an athlete. And then they start <laughs> sprinting and they'd come last in the sprints. And then, and somebody who's small would come first in the sprints. And they just write that player off and they go about the lad who's coming like 10 seconds later or what an athlete he's going to be. And I'm, I'm <laughs> standing there thinking he's not, believe me. <laughs> I mean, and, yeah. And that was, and that was maybe seven or eight years ago. So those kids would now be 18, 19 and they're not athletes. <laughs> Height isn't everything. Uh, size isn't everything. All, all uh, of that is still however, I'll counter that now because I assume your next question is going to be about Ali Gray. Well, I mean, it was it was going to be how tall is he? Yeah, he's really tall, and that's why he's really good. <laughs> <laughs> no, Ali's a really tall lad, great serve, um, but he is an athlete. That's the difference. Ali Ali's a he could play NBA. Um, and is he? So he's really tall. Uh, yeah. What would you say, Anna? He's six three, six four. Is he? Yeah. I yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say he's any taller than that. I see. Yeah, I'd say six three maybe. Right. I mean, I could be completely wrong. Go on Wikipedia. It might be six foot eight. Well, as we know, Wikipedia is complete nonsense because you. It gives you an extra couple of inches, so I wouldn't believe a word it says. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. I, yeah, he's he's a big guy, but like you say, he's um he's pretty he's pretty athletic and uh, and very coordinated. So yeah, I I don't think uh, I don't know. I'm not necessarily a believer in all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Ali went to the same college as Cam Norrie. That's I was going to say, yeah, he's new. coming um, through the same program. And yeah, he's had a pretty strange start to the year, at really, because the first couple of weeks we've had four futures, four twenty-five Ks in Britain um, this year. And the first couple, he he kind of did all right, but didn't pull any trees up. And then the last two, he's yeah, he's he's played exceptionally well. Tearing it up, another man into the um, top 400 in the world, just as Sonny Cartel is in the WTA. So, um, yeah, more homegrown tournaments, the better, as we know from the Italian model, as we've talked about a lot. And there's plenty of them going on in the UK at the moment. So 
all power to them. Uh, I think that's all we've got time for today. Uh, thank you very much to Anna for joining us for the first time on the pod. And Calvin, as always, we'll try and track George down. He's somewhere in the mountains on a horse. So uh, he may be back next week, but um, fingers crossed, maybe he'll be away for another one. Uh, as always, thank you very much for listening. Do leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts and give us a follow at Love Tennis Pod on Twitter. And we'll catch you next week. Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.